Hello, my name is Rory O'Connor and I am President of the International Association for Suicide Prevention. I'm delighted to welcome you to our new podcast series called Reach In, Reach Out. We're hoping to encourage safe conversations around suicide and suicide prevention, and we aim to bring together the different aspects of the work that we do, providing a global perspective, but crucially also sharing stories of hope. A fundamental part of our work is engaging with people with lived and living experience of suicide, either through their own personal experiences of suicidality or through loss and grief. This will be a central strand running through the entire podcast series. Given the sensitive nature of the subject matter, it is vital that we all prioritize our well-being. So please practice self-care. I hope that you find the podcast of interest and we really look forward to hearing what you have to think. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of YASP's podcast, Reach In, Reach Out. And we're absolutely delighted today that we have two amazing guests. We're going to hear from Associate Professor Joe Robinson, who's based at the University of Melbourne, and also Dr. Olivia Kirtley, and Olivia is based in Europe and in, in, in Leuven University in Belgium. So welcome, Joe and Olivia. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited because what we're going to talk about today is such an important topic is looking at youth suicide and youth self-harm, and, and it's been in the media a lot over recent weeks and months, even before the pandemic, we've been known about the rise or our concern around the rise in mental health problems and suicide and self-harm in this age group. So I'm hoping to maybe talk about some of that work or our understanding of the epidemiology or the scale of changes of on suicide and self-harm amongst young people, children and adolescents. And then maybe broaden it out as well, just to talk about really innovative work I know both of you are involved in both in research but also in practice and also Olivia you're doing really amazing work in trying to open up our um, the whole process of data and science and the publication process as well as maybe dispelling or challenging some of the myths around adolescent suicide and self-harm so that's what I'm hoping we'll we'll touch on in, in, in the course of the next 40 or so minutes we'll see how we get on but I think it would be really good if we can just start, if I just ask just for a general introduction. So many people listening to this podcast will know both of you, but many others will not. So maybe if I start with Joe, Joe, do you want to tell us a bit about you? And well, I know both of you very well, but Joe, do you want to kick off with, tell us a bit, a brief life history of Joe Robinson? <laughs> Goodness, sure. So I, as you said in the introduction, Rory, am based at Origin, which is part of the University of Melbourne. In Australia, I have been here for about almost 20 years, actually, leading and well, I originally developed and now lead the Youth Suicide Prevention Research Group here at Origin. And before that was actually working at the University of, of Manchester in the UK, leading a or managing a suicide research project there. And I suppose in terms of the, the plotted history of Joe Robinson, I think I'm probably one of, I just might describe myself sometimes as the accidental academic, I think. I was probably one of the most unlikely people to go into academia that I, you know, that you could imagine really, because I was a bit of a rubbish student academically all the way through <laughs> school. I was a bit hopeless all the way through my undergraduate days. I was the person that was always 
sitting outside the library, sitting on the library steps, waiting for everybody else to come out for their coffee breaks to hang out with me, but very rarely went inside. So it was only kind of later, I think, that I kind of really engaged. So my undergraduate degree was psychology, and it was only kind of really later in my undergrad days that I kind of really sort of developed a bit of a passion for the subject, and and it kind of went from there. But I guess I didn't take a sort of straightforward kind of path through university and through a kind of PhD and into academia. I spent, possibly because I was such a rubbish student, I spent a bit of time after leaving uni working and working in sort of social care and working in residential care with people with mental health problems and learning disabilities. And I did that for quite a few years, actually, before I then went back to uni to do my master's in applied psychology and then started working in in a research job. And I think I'd initially imagined going into clinical psych, but became quite clear to me very quickly once I moved into a research role that research was the place for me. And it kind of went from there, really. And yeah, I was lucky enough to get the position with the with the confidential inquiry at the University of Manchester, which is really the role that got me into, into suicide prevention. Was that the very beginning of the confidential inquiry then, George? It, it was early on. It was early on. It wasn't quite the beginning of the inquiry. So they've been around for a few years before that. So, so I for those, know those this, who I don't know, what, what's the, the confidential inquiry? Do you remember me say a bit about that and before yeah. we so, move back to Melbourne? Gosh, yes. And this will be a blast from the past for me to describe this role. But it was the inquiry is a national research project run out of the University of Manchester, which looks at all instances of suicide and homicide, actually, that are experienced or conducted by people who are within the mental health system. So what the inquiry does is looks at all, as I say, all suicides and all homicides. And then it goes back to the treating or the clinical team, I guess, to look at what some of those clinical characteristics or antecedents were that, you know, antecedents of the suicide or, or the homicide. And I think, you know, it was a great experience working on that project. Actually, I was managing a team. It started off as a small team, ended up as quite a big team by the time I left. Probably no thanks to me, much more thanks to people like Nav Kapoor and Lewis Appleby that were running the show. But I learned an awful lot. First of all, I developed a real passion for for suicide prevention research. But also the inquiry was a great example of a national project that really influenced policy and then influenced service improvements and service development, I think. So it was, I think, you know, from the very beginning of my research career, actually, I've worked in quite translational research, if you like. So as I say, at the inquiry, we really they really did a good job of translating those findings into policy and practice. And probably more recently now, the, the work that we're doing here at Origin is, is pretty hands-on. It's pretty translational. We're developing training packages, which we evaluate. Again, still a big role kind of working in, in policy and advising and evaluating policy initiatives here in Australia. But we also do have a very kind of applied research program where we're doing work in emergency departments. We're doing work in schools. And we're doing lots of work in the social media area. Great. We'll return to some of those in a second. And I'll come on to Olivia in a wee second. One last question, just because I just don't know this after this myself. Well, what was it took you to Australia in the first place? Was it just a new job, new opportunity? <laughs> well, sort of. I had always wanted to have an opportunity to live and work abroad. I'd never really wanted to emigrate, but I'd always wanted the chance to, to work overseas for a little while. So to be perfectly honest, everywhere we went on holiday, I would say to my partner, can we move here? And he would say things like, no, Joe, we don't speak Greek or no, Joe, we don't speak Spanish. I'd be like, that doesn't matter. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. So when we came to Australia, 
we came here, I had a conference. So I was representing the inquiry. I was speaking at a mental health conference. And we, because it was such a long way, we came as a family. My daughter was three at the time. And we came over on holiday and we all just fell in love with the place. And so when I did say to Will, can we move here? He couldn't really say, no, we don't speak English. So, and I took him on a pilgrimage to the MCG. He's a big cricket fan. So we went off to the MCG and he was sold from day one. So we really then decided that, you know, we were at a point in our lives where we kind of possibly were ready for a little bit of a change or a little bit of an adventure. Ella was still very little. And so we thought, let's see if we can go back and, you know, have a bit of an adventure. So the the plan was that we would come for two years. Here we are nearly 20 years later. But the plan was also that we we sort of got home and said, well, let's see if one of us, why don't we just try and get a job and see whoever gets a job first will go with their job and then we'll just work the rest out later. And because he's much smarter than me, he didn't try to get a job at all. And because I'm really competitive, I just went hell for leather at getting a job. So I got a job really quickly and easily <laughs> at the University of Melbourne. And we'll just sort of sat back kind of going, yeah, sucks to be you. So we came across on my job and he later got a job, but we did. So we came across thinking we would be here for two mm. years. And as I say, two years became became 20 years. And here we still are. Yeah, I mean, and the rest is history. And, and obviously the UK's loss is Australia or Melbourne and Australia's gain. Well, we'll come back to some of the work you've been doing, Joe, in a second. So I'll leave you over to you because you've also a, a multi-country, and well, actually experience and also you've also had to learn a new language unlike Joe so tell us about <laughs> your yeah, the, the idea of Olivia you don't speak Dutch didn't deter me although it might it should perhaps have deterred me from moving to Belgium yeah I, I suppose I've had a, a bit of a different path really so actually when I was studying psychology for my A level so when I was sort of you know 17 18 uh, years old then I actually sort of became quite interested in in suicide research, because around that time, there was quite a prominent suicide cluster in the UK. And it was just all over the papers, everywhere you went, especially it was clustered mainly in youth and young people. And it really sort of started me thinking about, okay, what, what is it that is sort of driving all these, these young people to, to take their lives? And so when I was sort of picking where to go for my, my undergraduate degree in psychology, I was really looking for somewhere that might also give me the opportunity to explore this interest and I happened to to find this very interesting research group which was then at the University of Stirling led by this guy called like Professor Rory O'Connor or something you might have uh, heard of him so I moved up to to Stirling and at the time I was still thinking okay I think I I'd really like to you know to do clinical actually but I I want to have this opportunity to explore to learn more about suicide and uh, and self-harm and a mixture of things. So one was that I just really sort of fell in love with research when I was at, at Stirling University. And I actually literally ran after Rory uh, had given a talk at the Psychology Society to ask if I could intern in his, his lab and had the opportunity to explore research on, on suicide and self-harm with Rory, which was wonderful. And also a bit of a, a personal experience with then someone close to me then was admitted to hospital following a severe episode of self-harm. And it just really made me realise that everything I thought I knew about self-harm as a sort of, you know, would-be psychologist, you know, around 19, 20 years old, was just completely wrong. And it just made me very determined to sort of try and dedicate myself to to doing something to, to, to make a difference, to try and, yeah, do something so that people don't end up feeling like they only have the option of 
of self-harming or of, of attempting suicide when they feel very distressed. And so I ended up then um, doing my PhD with you, Rory, on pain and self-harm, which ended up being at the University of Glasgow. And following that, I then also did a postdoc with Rory, which is on adverse childhood experiences and self-harm and that was that was a really interesting experience because it sort of yeah it gave me a lot of sort of experience that I kind of later come back to then in terms of thinking about the role of people's context about socioeconomic factors involved in in suicide and self-harm but then eventually I made a decision also to to take a bit of a leap and move abroad to come to Belgium to actually work on a project about psychosocial factors involved in chronic pain. So a bit different, but linked to my, my PhD research. And then followed by subsequent postdocs, then where I moved to Leuven, which is another city in, in Belgium, and where I joined a research group that specialises in the experience sampling method, which is a sort of digital monitoring technique that we use to, to gather data on, on suicide and self-harm, amongst other things. And that's where I've been ever since. So now I've sort of built up a, a research line on, on suicide at uh, the Centre for Contextual Psychiatry then at Leuven, where we're really sort of trying to, to use this digital monitoring technique to, to find out more about what it is in people's daily lives in that, you know, in the moment when they're feeling really, really distressed that, that ends up driving them to, to think about or, or attempt suicide. Well, fantastic, Olivia, and, and obviously most of that I knew, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but let's try and widen the discussion out um, now in terms of the youth suicide and, and self-harm. And, and actually not, a number of things you, you both said we'll, we'll, we'll touch on, obviously, early early life trauma and uh, adverse childhood experiences, social media, the role of that, and sort of digital experiences, both in in terms of people sometimes contextualize those as risk factors, but as well as protective factors and modes of data collection, as well as intervention. But maybe before we get into those sorts of details, Joe, can I go back to you and could you maybe set the scene in terms of what do we think we know thus far about sort of the rates of maybe suicide, maybe in, in the, in young, amongst young people? Hmm. This is exactly where I hoped you wouldn't go, Rory. Was <laughs> 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 straight into the epidemiology and the numbers. But what, maybe, maybe if yeah. I kick off and then maybe, maybe people just jump, jump in and maybe this idea, I suppose, we, in terms of the, the evidence base, we know if we look at the lifespan of any form of self-interest behaviour, we know it's very rare before puberty. And then you start to see this, this marked increase in post-puberty and then those um, late teens, early 20s. And I think that's the steepest period in the lifespan where you start to see, we see these marked increases. So maybe then, Joe, but are there particular data then from Australia that you're aware of then in that context? Or Yeah. So, no, I think what I will say is I think that's exactly right. I think both self-harm and suicide risk typically do onset around that period of adolescence. And I think that that's probably consistent across certainly most of the the Western world, I would say. There's, yeah, possibly some differences in other parts of the world. But we certainly see that here in Australia. And I would say other Western English-speaking countries are probably similar. And, and, you know, it, it does kind of align with that kind of onset of puberty and with the onset of other what we might call risk factors. So the onset of mental ill health and, and perhaps, you know, other risk-taking behaviours like substance misuse and those sorts of things. And there's clearly a relationship between all of those things. So we certainly see adolescence as that kind of peak period of onset of some of these problems. And I guess the other thing that I would say about this, it's it's kind of hard to know, and I'm kind of not brilliant at this sort of thing in terms of kind of knowing exactly what rates are in different parts of the world. 
what we do know is that suicide is one of the leading causes of death in most parts of the world amongst young people. So certainly the WHO data would tell us that suicide is the third or fourth leading cause of death in young people around the world. And here in Australia, it's the leading cause of death for for young people. And rates are higher in the sort of the older age group of the young people bracket, Mm -hmm. if you like. So kind of rates tend to be a bit higher in that kind of age 18 to 24 year old age bracket. But we're certainly seeing increases in the younger age group. So even under 15s and also that kind of that that teen period of time, that 15 to 19 year old. So I think probably what I would say is that, yes, that adolescent period is a peak period of onset. Suicide is, you know, one of the leading causes of death in globally in young people and certainly the leading cause of death in young people here in Australia. And the other thing that I would say is those rates are increasing. So that's the other thing. And you you might come back to this, I guess, but certainly you alluded to it in the introduction as around the impacts of the pandemic, I think, and what was happening. So we certainly know that youth suicide rates here in Australia, but also, again, in other Western countries, have were increasing prior to the pandemic. And we're seeing that trend continue in these last couple of years worth of data as well, and particular increases in sort of self-harm and suicidal ideation too. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I'll bring Olivia in in a second, Olivia. But I think the impact of the pandemic is a really interesting and nuanced one because we know that from work that Jane Perkis has done, has led globally, is a consistent pattern is we still haven't seen this marked increase in suicides. And maybe there's some exceptions to that. But, but we do know there is data. We do mine in by age and look at age by sex. There is clear evidence of that increase amongst younger people and that concern, especially with those very young people, or maybe maybe some signals that suicide and self-harm are starting younger, perhaps. Now, we don't know for certain yet, but certain from my reading of some of the data, that seems to be the case. But I think, we, I think the jury is still out on terms of the impact of the pandemic. And of course, now the challenge will be disentangling the impact of the pandemic from the cost of living crisis, the impact of Ukraine and displacement and and other factors going on globally. So Olivia, just kind of bring you in there. So in terms of the Belgium experience or, or any data you're aware of in terms of that, the epidemiology, is there anything you would like to add? Sure. Well, I think the, you started off with a, with a thorny issue, so the Belgian, the Belgian data. So Belgium is a country that is split into several different regions. So we've got the northern Dutch-speaking part, uh, Flanders, which is where I'm based, and then we also have the, the city of Brussels, the Brussels region, which is mostly French-speaking. And then we also have uh, Wallonia, which is the southern French-speaking part, and we also have a very small German-speaking community as well. So we've got three languages and a federal government and lots of complications with getting data. So it's tricky to, to give a sort of a full picture. But I mean, essentially, since, say, 2020, when the sort of initial kind of health targets were, were set in terms of suicide prevention with the sort of one of the early Flemish action plans for suicide prevention, we've overall seen a decrease in, in suicides, in suicide deaths then since, since 2020. But the thing is, we don't know very much about the very recent picture. So unfortunately, the data that we're working with at the moment, or rather that my colleagues are working with, is actually from 2018. So we have a huge delay in getting data about the recent picture. I can say that based on sort of absolute figures that we've got from the from the federal police, 
So these are not sort of age or gender standardised rates, but we we didn't see you know an increase in suicides during the pandemic, which is encouraging based on these absolute figures. But still, yeah, we're still waiting for a lot of data to be able to say anything more fine grained about that, and especially anything more fine grained, particularly about young people. Yeah, you just even thinking about young people. There's some horrendous data, really concerning data, coming out of the United States. If you look at the CDC data on looking at suicide attempts amongst young people across the different periods of the pandemic, and there really are stark, there are stark increases. But again, that's not consi- that's not a consistent story internationally. And again, the challenge that we always face in our field is. Yeah, we've we've got reasonable data, I think, for suicide deaths at a macro level, but maybe not necessarily up to date, a bit like you're touching on, Olivia, there. But in terms of non-fatal suicidal behaviour, especially looking in a global context and low and middle income countries, we just don't have that coverage of data. But actually, you can probably extend that to m- most countries. I think our data collection for high income, lower middle income country, our data collection for non-fatal suicidal behaviour is very remains limited. And where it does exist, it tends to be, of course, hospital-treated suicide attempts, hospital-treated self-harm, which we know are only the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's a huge problem, I think, that the field of suicide research faces is really how to get adequate, accurate, up-to-date data about suicidal thoughts and behaviours, about self-harm thoughts and behaviours. I think it's a, a real challenge. I mean, from the, so the Sigma study, so we've just looked at data then from... The first wave of that was in 2018. Can just so what's the, stig- the Sigma study? Yeah, so the, the Sigma study is a large longitudinal study of adolescent mental well-being uh, and health, which I led for some years at, at Leuven. So in wave one, in terms of self-harm data, we had data from around about 1,200 adolescents aged 12, 14 and 16. At baseline. And so in this baseline wave of data collection, then when we ask people about their lifetime history of self-harm sorts of behaviours, around about 20% indicated that they'd had thoughts of self-harm at some point in their lives, which is broadly consistent with, with previous data. And around about 21% indicated a lifetime history of actually engaging then in self-harm behaviours. So I think it's that's sort of broadly consistent with the, the international picture. But of course, those data are then from, from 2018, 2019. Well, thanks, for, thanks, for Olivia. That's really interesting. Maybe then we bring it back to Joe. Joe, then the obvious next question is: Well, what do we know about why these increases have been occurring? Even if we think about independent of the pandemic, because we know that brought with it or brings with it unique challenges. But even before pandemic, what do we think we know about? And, and maybe what is the role of social media, if any? And what's the size of the relationship? Because I just think this is where, in terms of trying to challenge some of the myths around suicide in young people. Do you want to maybe kick us off that, Joe? Yeah, I think there's a a few things, to be honest. So, And I think you're absolutely right when you said before that it's going to be quite hard, I think, to start to untangle what the impact of the pandemic has is or, or will continue to be on psychological distress and rates of suicide and self-harm and those sorts of things going forward from some of those other drivers that we're seeing start to play out now, which is stuff around cost of living, housing crisis, you know, all of those sorts of things that we're seeing playing out across different parts of the world. And certainly we're feeling very acutely here in Australia. So I think, you know, I get asked this a lot, why are rates of suicide or self-harm going up in young people? What, What is it that's going on? And It is, I mean, it's a hard question to answer, I think, but we do know 
a fair bit about things like risk factors. You know, we know that mental ill health, you know, is one of the key risk factors for suicide and self-harm in young people. And we know that rates of, of mental ill health are going up and psychological distress and those sorts of things are going up. And in fact, we've just had some new data released in Australia just over this last week or two around rates of self-harm and rates of suicidal ideation, psychological distress in young people. And so they are kind of fairly up-to-date data, and we are seeing significant increases in those things over time, particularly in young people and particularly in young females. So I think there's something going on in terms of these increasing rates of depression and anxiety, coupled with some of those socio-demographic kind of factors that are going on. I think the other thing that we know, certainly that's playing out in some of the data that we're seeing is gender-based and family violence, I think is a particular problem, again, particularly for young women and including young trans women, actually. We've been doing some work with the LGBTQIA plus community, and that's something that they're, they're seeing play out in their data and they're particularly concerned about as well. But I think the issue of social media, I think, you know, keeps cropping up for me. People keep saying, well, you know, we've seen these increases over time. Is it, you know, at the same time, we've seen this kind of rising use of of role of social media, online sources of help or what have you, you know, is that is that our explanation? And I think what I would say to that is, you know, that's probably an oversimplistic view. I mean, we would all know that suicide is terribly complex and, you know, there's there's all sorts of factors that would lead somebody to experience a suicidal crisis. And I think social media, I often describe it as a bit of a mixed blessing or kind of double-edged sword, whichever way you kind of want to look at it, where we know that there are problems associated or there can be problems associated with social media and the ways in which young people might use it or some of the ways in which young people might use it. So we know there's the opportunity for things like, you know, negative social comparisons or, you know, problematic information being shared, particularly when it comes to suicide or or self-harm imagery or kind of messages that might, you know, lead to distress or imitative type behavior, that kind of thing. And we also know that kind of social media has the capacity to amplify some of the problems that might be existing in people's offline worlds. So, you know, if you think about bullying, so for example, back in the day when I was at school and there was bullying going on at school, it generally happened at school and it got left at school. Now I think, you know, bullying might follow young people around on their phones and we know that young people have got their phones with them all the time. So I think that just the the very characteristics of social media could possibly amplify or or can certainly amplify some of the problems that we see in people's offline worlds as well. well I agree entirely with what you've said. For me, though, the concern about that bullying, which goes beyond the offline world, online is, that's just, I mean, in reality, metaphorically and in reality, it increases your sense of entrapment, which we know obviously is problematic. And I think that's to my mind, yeah, we need to see social media in context, and Olivia will probably speak to this as well. And yeah, it's only one factor, which of course can be devastating for somebody who's already vulnerable. But if you look at look at systematic reviews on this topic over the last few years, it highlights the benefits, of course, as well as as well as the risks. Well, and that's exactly where I was going to go. Is you know, I would say that in addition to those, you know, potential downsides of social media. There are also lots of benefits potentially of social media. And that's certainly where our work has gone. And certainly the young people that we've been speaking to along the way have told us that there are lots of benefits that social media can offer when it comes to, you know, suicide and self-harm. And they're really around kind of the capacity to seek help a lot, that capacity actually for connection, for social connection, which again might mitigate some of the risks associated with suicide or the vulnerabilities that might make somebody kind of at risk of suicide. Actually, if you can really foster that sense of connectedness and 
decrease some of the stigma associated with experiencing suicide or self-harm, actually that might be potentially protective. In addition to the capacity for us to use social media or some of the audiences of social media, I suppose, in a helpful way. So that idea that you can reach lots and lots of people very quickly in the same way that you can reach lots of people very quickly with unhelpful messages. You can also reach them with helpful messages if we use it smartly, I think. And I'm I'm not sure we've been doing lots of work in, in the social media area, as you guys would know, but I'm still not sure that actually we're really capitalizing, certainly for us as a group, we're not, I don't think, quite capitalizing on some of the benefits that social media offers yet. And, you know, I'm interested to hear what Olivia's got to say, because I know that your your work has gone in a slightly different direction where you are probably, you know, capitalizing on some of those benefits probably a bit more creatively, I think, than than we are. But I think there's a lot of untapped potential still to be honest, in tech and social media that we we would do well to learn from or, or capitalise on in suicide prevention. No, great, no, great points, Joe. And actually a lovely segue for to <laughs> Olivia's work. And we'll come back maybe to the work you, you're, you've been doing on ChatSafe. But Olivia, can I bring you in there and just on that lovely introduction that, sure. that Joe gave about, yeah, the work that you've been doing more broadly on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we haven't done really very much in terms of social media sort of in of itself but the work that we do is basically all sort of using this particular method which we call the experience sampling method or ESM which is essentially a, a digital monitoring technique whereby we get young people to download a special app onto their, their phone and then we use this app to ask them a series of very short questions multiple times a day for a period of days or sometimes even weeks depending on the study and what this enables us to do is to get this very rich, detailed, almost real-time picture of some of the things that might play a role in people's suicidal or self-harm thoughts and behaviours. And these are things, for example, like social interaction, people's experiences of social interaction. Do you feel like you belong when you're interacting socially or do you feel judged or do you feel like you would rather be alone? Or if you're alone, do you feel comfortable being alone or do you crave company? Do you feel lonely as well? Of course, people's mood and and other things like that. And what these data enable us then to to do is to really see, okay, in the first questionnaire we we gave you this morning, your positive mood was very low and your negative mood was very high. And then does that then for example, predict whether a few hours later you're then starting to think about self-harm or your thoughts of self-harm are increasing in intensity or things like that. And so this does provide lots of really, really interesting insights and also lots of opportunities then hopefully in the future to develop sort of real-time interventions as well. So I could sort of have a, a vision in the future, for example, of a young person who's completing some of these questionnaires and then the app is sort of learning the things that are normally happening at the same time as when they, they their thoughts of self-harm start to escalate. Then their responses indicate that their thoughts of self-harm are escalating and then the app pops up with, oh, okay, it looks like you're having a really difficult time at the moment and maybe your thoughts of self-harm are becoming quite you know, difficult to manage. Have you thought about reaching out to your friend, you know, Joe, for example, or something like that, or giving some exercises, for example, which link to perhaps other therapy you might have been having? And then it, it means that people are getting help in their daily life where they really need it most, as opposed to thinking, oh, gosh, yes, this is really hard but I'll have to wait until my next appointment in you know, three weeks' time or something with my clinician to discuss this and how I could manage it better. Yeah, no, I think they're really excellent suggestions. And 
And maybe it harks back to Joe's point about we still haven't done enough to harness these new technologies. But I think what's great about the work you're doing, Olivia, it's helping us better understand that hopefully or get some sense of the fluctuations in suicidal thoughts, the fluctuations in risk factors and how they're actually how they're related in a complex ways. It'll never it'll never be straightforward because I suppose we when we talk about these just in time interventions, we need to know when that time when is, is that when, time. When is exactly. That time. Yes. Yes. And we still we still don't know. And it's probably likely to be unique for every every individual has their own pattern. I know work we've been doing with colleagues in the Netherlands using obviously ESM methods shows it mean that the different individuals have a very, very different trajectory of suicidal thoughts and behaviors over and they're really, really different patterns. So I think it's for us to all try to understand understand those better. But as part of it is thinking about also is that you talked about that social connectedness. And, and I think that I think one of the things we if we do think about the the challenge of the pandemic is although we won't know for certain that really the longer term impact i think without doubt we know though that young people's mental health was adversely affected even if their suicide rates aren't reflecting that in a global context yet there's clear evidence and certainly data that we being collected and collecting in the uk that's as clear as a very very clear thing that's young people's levels of suicidal thoughts loneliness entrapment defeat depressive symptoms symptoms of anxiety they all really did increase during the pandemic and certainly in the most recent data we had now from end of last year that, that they hadn't recovered to pre what, what we think is our pre-pandemic level. So we do have this, this on, ongoing issue. And, and, and one last thing, and I'll maybe bring Joe back into talk about the chat safe stuff, is that with colleagues in, in, in Norway, Borga Sivertsen and his colleagues, they're part of this, they've got this ongoing cross-sectional, repeated cross-sectional survey of college students, and we could tens of thousands of people. And so we can we, we can certainly know from data from Norway that quite clearly amongst um, college students, I mean, one of their data collection points was in 2020 during the pandemic, as there's clear evidence, it doesn't matter which indicator you, you use, in that college student population, people's mental health has got worse. But an interesting one, and one for us to think about lessons if, God forbid, there's another pandemic and, we, and we're, we're, we're faced with it, is that we have to face up to the challenges and the consequences of lockdowns. And, and so that in that data set from Norway, there was clear evidence that showed that the number of days that people were in college and say the previous week was strongly associated with suicidal thoughts and suicidal behavior. So those people who were less able to go into a college environment is one indicator perhaps of social connection that was obviously a risk factor, and that's no surprise. We know that from a whole range of other pieces of work. So I think, so I think that although we don't know the full picture around COVID and young people, I think we need to be learning those lessons as we as we move forward in the in the next few years. Now, Liv, I'm going to come back to you in a, in a, minute, in a minute about the open science work, uh, which I think is so important for the field. But Joe, obviously, everywhere I go now in suicide prevention, in every country, it seems. People are, are looking and using the chat safe guidelines that you've developed and amazing work. So for those who are less familiar, do you want to tell us what chat safe is, how it was developed? Because I think that's what's really brilliant about it, so that involvement of young people themselves. Sure. Yeah, very happy to. So chat safe 
is a set of guidelines that we developed a few years ago that are designed to help young people communicate safely online about suicide. And I guess they really came about because I suppose thinking back to the, the conversation we were having a couple of minutes ago, you know, we were hearing all of these things about social media. The suicide prevention sector was really sort of saying, you know, we shouldn't really be encouraging young people to talk about suicide or self-harm online. That's a harmful thing for them to do for all sorts of reasons. So, for example, because it might cause distress. And, and again, because, you know, there were concerns that certain types of communication would lead to episodes of contagion or suicide clusters and so on. So the sector was very much kind of, you know, saying young people shouldn't be having these conversations online. But, you know, at Origin, working with young people is in our DNA. And, and, you know, so the first thing we always do is ask young people what they think about various things. And young people were telling us loud and clear that they do use social media. They were using social media to have these conversations. And there were some important benefits associated with doing that. So they didn't necessarily feel able to talk about suicide or self-harm in that offline worlds. They were finding it hard to seek help. They were finding the subject matter was stigmatizing or you know, as Olivia talked about before, sometimes it can take quite a long time to get an appointment in between appointments with clinicians, whereas you can go online to seek help nice and quickly. And the other thing that young people told us that was beneficial was that they could help each other as well as receive help. And I thought that was really interesting, particularly in terms of tackling that idea of burdensomeness, actually, that young people really felt they were less of a burden to others if they were also helping people, not just getting help. So we were kind of hearing that there were all sorts of benefits associated with talking about suicide online. So we were kind of hearing these kind of two different differing perspectives, I suppose. The other thing that I will say is, as we all know, that guidelines for mainstream media have been an important part of, of the suicide prevention landscape in many countries for a long time. And the idea of those is to really equip mainstream media reporters to communicate or to report safely about suicide. But there was nothing that was designed for social media and there was nothing that was designed for young people. So I guess that's where ChatSafe came in. So what we did was a Delphi expert consensus study where we reviewed all the literature. We identified all sorts of different action items that could potentially go into a set of guidelines like these. And we developed two expert panels. And one of our panels was suicide prevention professionals. So some of them were academics and some of them were communications professionals in suicide prevention. And we had a panel of young people who had either used social media to communicate about their own suicidality or they'd encountered suicide-related content online and wanted to respond but didn't know how to. And so that's how we kind of initially developed the first set of guidelines. So we conducted these expert consensus studies and everything that achieved over 80% consensus was included in the guidelines and anything below that was kind of booted out, basically. And we were very proud of the guidelines. They did attract a lot of attention around the world. They were seen to be quite innovative, but they were still a set of guidelines, right, that was sitting on a mental health organization's website. So we then kind of went about co-designing a social media campaign with young people from across Australia. So we worked with several hundred young people to take all the different sections of the guidelines and turn them into a national social media campaign. And we were very cautious, like there was a whole range of work that I won't talk about that was kind of a prequel to all of this, because we were very cautious about what we were doing, because we were thinking, oh, crikey, we're out here talking to young people about suicide on social media, when the whole sector was kind of very nervous about that. So because of that, we evaluated it very carefully to make sure that we weren't causing harm. 
And we found that not only were we not causing harm, but young people really benefited from taking part in the co-design activities. So the co-design process in and of itself was beneficial. And those young people felt better equipped to communicate about suicide, both online and offline. And they felt better able to help their friends and so on. So we developed this suite of social media content that was then rolled out as part of a national campaign across various social media channels. We also caught the attention of Facebook, who then gave us some additional funding to globalize the guidelines. So that's where we were then able to translate them into multiple languages for, for various other countries and regions around the world, which was which was fantastic. And the uptake has been, you know, really, you know, we've been really thrilled to see the uptake. We've evaluated it in various studies and we're just in the process of mounting an RCT. So we're just about to start a randomized control trial to actually test the impact of the of the interventions of the guidelines and the social media campaign in a slightly more rigorous way. And we're doing a little bit more work with, with what's now called Meta, the organization formerly known as Facebook, to do some additional translations and, and just improve the reach of the guidelines and the social campaigns in in different countries. It's been a great journey, actually. We never expected them to receive the kind of the attention and the uptake that they did, but they definitely appear to have been able to have helped young people communicate more safely online and better help their friends. And if anybody who doesn't know where to find details of Chatsafe, give us a shout out, please. <laughs> certainly, you can find them on the Origin website. So if you just, well, you can certainly just Google Chatsafe tools and tips to talk safely online about suicide and they'll come up. But you can certainly find them on the Origin website and on all of our social channels. So the, the probably the best place to see the Chatsafe content is on our Instagram, is on our Instagram page. Fantastic. Yeah. No, thanks for that, Joe. I think it's such important work and it's great to see I think not only something not only that something started off in one country and then it's been adopted, but that important partnership between academia and corporate organizations, because no matter what, we need to involve everybody. Everybody's a stake in suicide prevention. And I think that combination with that working with Meta and other organizations I know you do work with as well is so, so vital if we're to move the field forward and crucially save people's lives. Olivia, can I move back to you now and just and the really you've really been spearheading within the suicide prevention field and um, the importance of open science. So do you want to tell us a bit about why that's important and then what you're doing in that regard? Sure. Well, um, open science, just to sort of say a little bit about what that is, essentially a sort of suite of, of, of practices and approaches to doing science. So it's more about how we do the science, in this case, uh, of, of suicide uh, research, of self-harm research. And there's a whole range of things that come under that umbrella of open science. So it could be making sure that the scientific articles that you write then, uh, you know, when you're writing up your, your data are freely available, for example, by, by pre-printing them. So creating a, a pre-peer-reviewed version of that article online. It could also be sharing the materials like the questionnaires or something like that you've used in your study or the code you used for your statistical analysis. Some people share data as well, which is great because that encourages them sort of you know, recycling of data. So we don't all have to start you know, reinventing the wheel, collecting some data and, and things like that. And why is it important? Well, we have had this sort of wonderful push you know, over the you know, many years now towards evidence-based practice and making sure that when we say to someone, okay, we think this treatment might help your self-harm or we think these factors are you know, risk protective factors for self-harm or you should take this drug to help with you know depression or something like that that those decisions are we have a reason for those decisions and that they're based on high quality scientific evidence 
but it's it's not always the the case, unfortunately. And in some cases, you know, in more broadly in psychology, we've seen that really key findings where sort of entire fields of research have been built on. When you actually try and do the study again, or you even try and run the, the same analysis on the same data, you don't always get the same results. And I think for me, it's really about how well research is serving the people who it needs to serve. So people who are struggling with suicidal thoughts and behaviours, clinicians, policymakers, because if the evidence base, you know, if we're building our sort of, you know, in interventions and things on an evidence base that is essentially thin air, then we're not where we think we should be. And we're, we're not really serving the people who we, who we should be serving as well as we can. And so I think then it's really important then to, to make sure that we, we work very sort of transparently to enable people to try and replicate our results or to try and reproduce our, our findings, make sure we pay attention to things like sample sizes, which I know is very tricky, you know, to make sure that we have enough statistical power to actually be able to detect meaningful sort of effects or changes in key variables when we're looking for them to make sure that we're really doing the, the best research that we can to to try and make a difference in people's lives. Well, and, and actually, it's not even making a difference. It's saving people's lives. As you, when you think about it in that context, it's so important that the data and the evidence is sound because it is potentially life-saving or the opposite, sadly. And yeah, so I think it's great to see this moving forward in the field. And I think it's a journey we're, that we're on as a field. It absolutely is a journey. And I think there are lots of different sort of shades of open science. I think a lot of people also think open science just means, oh, I have to hand over my data. That's not how it is. There are lots of ways of doing transparent, reproducible and replicable science. And I think it's it's something where we just have to sort of accept, okay, Maybe some of the things we've done in the past we can improve upon, we can do better. And this is going to take time. It's not like suddenly, you know, tomorrow we're all going to be, you know, the most reproducible discipline in, in, in science. But we just have to accept that this is a direction that is positive to move in. It, it has benefits for researchers as well as um, for other stakeholders in the research. And it's it's a learning process. We also have to be understanding of it as a learning process. And actually, to that end, my colleagues and I, so Alexa Gordon and Julie Janssen, one of my PhD students at Leuven, we just actually wrote a, an editor tutorial for, for crisis, which is a sort of tutorial and quick start guide to, to open science to help uh, demystify a few things and help people along the way. And is that editorial out yet or is it in press? I think or? It's, it's in press. It's imminently going to, going to be out. We actually also have a workshop coming up at the, the forthcoming European Symposium on Suicide and Suicidal Behaviour in Copenhagen. So if you want to learn about open science, especially early in the morning on the 24th of August, then please do come along and, and see us. And uh, we uh, we promise that uh, we'll uh, make things uh, fairly gentle for you. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Olivia. So maybe can I just stick with Olivia? I've got one sort of last sort of, sort of big question, and then we'll maybe try and bring things to a close. Unless, but before I, so I'm going to ask both of you, what do you see as sort of the, if you were to focus, the, uh, uh, somebody said you have to focus your efforts on two areas or two things to prevent or tackle youth suicide and self-harm, what would those be? So that's a question I'm going to ask you in a second. But, be, but before I ask it, is there any, are there any issues or topics you'd hoped I would ask about or we would discuss that we haven't had a chance to discuss? Joe, no. Olivia, no. Oh, shaking of heads. Oh, shaking of heads. Okay, so then sticking with you, Olivia, then. So in terms of those two, that question about the two things you would focus on, 
what, what comes to mind for you as maybe having the hopefully most benefit? Oh, that's that's so tricky just to, to narrow it down for, to, to two things. But I mean, I think, and yeah, I'll, I'll base much of it because I think I know one of the things at least that Joe might say. So I think you'll cover one of these, these things as well. But I think it's really important that we start to develop an understanding of the context around self-harm and, and suicidal thoughts and, and how these develop and, and are maintained. Because, you know, these, these thoughts and behaviours, this distress, it doesn't just emerge, you know, like magic out of nowhere. And so it's really important that we, we really look sort of holistically at, at young people and the, the kind of context they're in. And that could be anything from, you know, the socioeconomic status of the, the family that they're growing in, uh, growing up in, and those sort of living conditions too, you know, how they feel in social interactions or how they think about the future. And I also think, yeah, going back a little bit then to our conversation we had right at the beginning of the podcast, I think we need really to improve the data that we have because, you know, we have a saying in Dutch, is it meeten is meeten? So, you know, measuring is knowing. And I think we, in order to be able to have these sort of more agile responses to public health crises or to, you know, increases, for example, that we see in self-harm suicide, we really need much more fine-grained data to be able to, to tackle these problems. No, great. Now, two really great suggestions, Olivia. And I know we're both involved in a Lancet Commission on Self-Harm in which you are describing in more detail this idea of the individual in context. And I guess something we haven't discussed perhaps in much detail today is when we're trying to understand suicide and, and self-harm amongst young people, it's really looking at recognising that the social context and the extent to which inequalities and disadvantage and early life trauma are really important things to think about in that complex puzzle that leads too often to youth suicide and self-harm. So, Joe, over to you then for your two, what would you focus your efforts on? What are your two big, big asks, so to speak? Yeah, I think, I mean, it is hard to narrow them down to two, but I think if I was, if I was going to try and pick two, I think, and this might be a controversial thing to say, but I think I would reboot the health service system so that it adequately meets the needs of young people when they are in distress. And that's not necessarily waiting to go in a suicidal crisis, but it is when they're in a distress, in distress that might lead to a suicidal crisis. And certainly we're seeing here too many cases of young people presenting for help in crisis because there's been no access to care until that point and then potentially being turned away without getting the help they need or booted sort of from pillar to post and falling through the cracks in the service system. I don't think the services services are necessarily designed with young people in mind and really to meet the needs of young people. And I think in order to do that, we probably need to better harness technology so that we can make it much more accessible and acceptable to young people and also kind of allow services to meet young people where they're at rather than necessarily expecting young people to come to where the service systems are sitting at. So I think that is one thing that I would do. I would just kind of redesign the service system. The other thing that I think that we really need to do, and I think young people actually need to be central to this process, is I think we need to redevelop suicide prevention policies I think we need youth-specific suicide prevention plans and policies. I think for most countries, and certainly here in Australia, we have an all-ages suicide prevention plan. But I think the rising rates of youth suicide over the last decade are showing us that that plan isn't working. It's not meeting the needs of young people. And I think that plan, although I've just made some comments about the health service system, I don't think that plan necessarily needs to be 
entrenched in health, in the health system. I think it does need to acknowledge and address some of those health inequalities or those general social inequalities that we've been speaking about. And I think certainly one of the things that we're seeing here in Australia is, you know, a lack of hope around social inclusion issues. So a lack of hope that young people are going to be able to get access to good quality education, a lack of hope that they'll be able to make it into the workforce and earn enough money. The cost of living pressures are such that young people have got no hope really that they're going to be able to live independently, enter the housing market, those and those sorts of things. And the other thing that young people are lacking hope around is, is around climate. And so I really think we need to be addressing some of these things that are causing young people to lose hope. And I think young people need to be central to that process. I feel like I, I crammed lots of things into, into two things there. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I was sort of cheating, but but no, really important area. I think I got there. away with it. You did get away with it. And no, but I think that I'm hoping though, you started your first point about the health service saying that's controversial. I hope it's not controversial because I think hope most of us in the field recognize that something has to change with in particular child and adolescent mental health services, which in many countries in the world, there are stark waiting lists and young people in particular, we're going through that really challenging period of adolescence. We're having to wait months and months to get the treatment that they require. They might get assessments quick enough, but the treatments aren't available. So I think the system is broken in that respect and we need to look at new ways. And one thing, hopefully from the pandemic We've learned that how systems can be made to go fast and safely when when you have the right political pressure and how things, you think back to 2020 in particular, things happened at a speed in research, at a speed in clinical delivery that we would never have envisaged because they had to. And hopefully we don't lose sight of that. Learning what worked was effective then, then implementing that. So I think, so hopefully that's not, controversial and your point then of course about going to where young people are and so it's that it's a different model of delivery as well as that early intervention work is so so vital so no thanks 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 for those joe okay so thanks so much so much both of you for your for your time but before you go just got a quick one i think just which is maybe not necessarily suicide prevention or mental health focus but it's one we like to ask. So I'll start with Olivia this time again. Olivia, so I'll ask you the exact same question, Joe. Thinking back to your, or if you're thinking, reflecting over your time on this earth, so to speak, thus far, what advice would you give your 16-year-old self? Goodness me, I think I might need a whole other podcast for that. I think when I was 16, I was actually going through a really difficult time. I um, had a a chronic illness at the time. I was also, you know, having other sorts of things going on. And I think I would, yeah, I suppose I would tell myself just, you know, to to hang on in there because it does, it does improve. And I think a lot of things that, you know, seemed so overwhelming at that, that time for me, you know, they did. They did get better, not immediately, but over time, they they got better. And having good support, also from uh, you know professional support from a psychologist as well, also was very helpful. Yeah, no, very helpful advice. I think really important advice. I think when we when we know we think of the psychological evidence about adolescence in particular, when I mean your sensitivity to social failure to your view of the future is sort of different in a way that you can't see things changing. So that's really helpful advice indeed. Olivia, thanks for that. And so then, Joe, to your, your same question to yourself. Well, I think I would tell, 
thinking back to what I said at the beginning of this podcast, I think I would tell my 16-year-old self to pay a bit more attention in class and <laughs> to do a bit better at school and at university. But what I wouldn't do differently, and I, I would like to say this because I think it might be helpful for other early career researchers out there to hear this, is I didn't do my PhD till I was 40. So I didn't get my PhD until I was about 45. And I did take quite a roundabout route to getting that where I worked for quite a long time. And I wouldn't do that differently. So even though perhaps I could have paid a bit more attention and, and got slightly better grades early on in my career, I don't think it really stood in my way. And I think taking my time to get to my PhD and doing that when I was good and ready to do it has probably made me better at, at what I'm doing now. Yeah, no, that's a lot really helpful reflection. And, and, and I suppose it reflects the, the modern world we're living in and people's trajectories or journeys are not linear. They're not linear paths. That, and that meandering path is really, really beneficial as well. So no great advice. I, I think it's important for other early for early career researchers to hear that, because I think sometimes when people see, you know, a, somebody's career, it can look like it was terribly linear and terribly strategic and terribly successful along the way, all the way along. And it often isn't. I think. Yeah, no, really, really helpful. Okay, thank, any last closing closing thoughts from either of you, that things we'd hope they've covered? Well, just, just on behalf of the team at YASP, a big thanks. Oh, actually, and also a big thanks for both of you, your active members of YASP. Joe is one of our vice presidents, and Olivia, I don't know if you're still co-chair of the early I, career I, researcher group. Yeah. So thanks for, for everything you do for YASP and, and obviously for suicide research and prevention fields. So, and hopefully... Those listening find that helpful, and there's lots of links, again, in terms of the work that Joe's been doing, the work that Olivia has been doing. If you go to the university, their university sites, as well as in standard, obviously, publication places, you'll find lots more. So thanks, and obviously, please, tough. it's a tough listen to some of these podcasts, so please look after yourselves and stay well. Thank you, and goodbye. <laughs>